Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay of an episode with Dame Steve Stephanie Shirley. I recorded this one back in 2019. It was a sunny summer's day in London and we recorded it in a meeting room at Penguin's head offices. Dame Stephanie is a tech pioneer, entrepreneur and a philanthropist. She also goes by the name Steve, which she used to sign business letters to potential clients with when they were not responding to her. If you haven't already, go and watch her TED Talk. It is so brilliant, funny and moving and so interesting to hear what it was like being a woman in tech during the 60s. In this episode, we talk about her brilliant memoir, Let It Go, and workplace misogyny, making money, resilience, giving back, and why it's always important to keep learning no matter how old you are. Hope you enjoy this conversation. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be in Penguin with the most iconic person that I think I've ever had on this podcast, Dame Stephanie, aka Steve. That's right. Thank you so much for your time today. I was just saying that I rewatched your TED Talk last night and I didn't realise your book had come out before because in the TED Talk you reference the book a bit and so now it's been re-released. So I just wondered how has it been the second time around bringing it out into the world? Well, it's strange, I suppose, to have a book republished after so many years and it was a reasonable success for a book published um, basically by an unknown, uh, by a very small publisher who... Uh, uh, prepared to take a gamble on me. Um, I rewrote the, first, the last three chapters because what I find in a memoir, and it is a memoir, not an autobiography, is that it's quite difficult to see the recent things with any perspective. And so I was never very happy with the last three three chapters. So mm. I redid those. And Penguin are being marvellous to relaunch it and getting me to meet people like you, Emma, and, and we were at the BBC yesterday and, oh, I could really name drop. Because <laughs> it's incredible how chronological it is. We really start from the beginning with you in the, in the 30s, the kinder transport, your childhood. And I wondered how was it going back that far and were your memories kind of squished together or was it quite clear? People, because I had this traumatic childhood as an unaccompanied child refugee on the kinder transport, I mean, one of 10,000 children who came to Britain from Nazi Europe at that time, um, people always expect me to be able to say wonderful strategic things about the importance of the 30s and what was going on and so on. But of course, I only remember the childish things. I remember uh, the little boy that kept being sick and losing my doll and then finding her again and things like that. Um, so I really, um, I know how important that journey, two and a half day journey from Vienna to Liverpool Street Station in London has been to me. It's really driven my life. Um, I was five years old, um, traveling with my older sister, age of nine, uh, with, on a train with about a thousand children aged up to 16, um, and um, just two adults. I mean, when I think back, it was Bedlamic, and it was the, the people, it was awful, really. Um, but nevertheless, it's a very short period in my life, and it has driven the rest of my life. It's made me realize that I can cope with things like that. I can cope with change. I've learned to even love change, and that's useful in my high-tech life. Um, I've learned to um, well, apart from anything else, really, I, I, I love this, my adopted country, with a passion that perhaps only someone who has lost their human rights can mm -hmm. feel. Um, 
but I think primarily, Emma, it has meant that I'm very conscious that my life was saved. I was close to annihilation and that I'm so lucky that I have to, I need to make it a life that was worth saving. And so I don't fritter my life away. I'm a very serious person. I try to fill um, each day with something that's worthwhile. And that has, in fact, given me a wonderful quality of life. And whereas at one time I was a real depressive, uh, nowadays I'm actually a very happy person. I really am content and happy with what I'm doing. It's just incredible to meet you as someone with such a solid identity and having obviously done so much in your career. But for a lot of people, they did grow up with their parents and they had the same the same name their whole life. But at 18, you became officially a British citizen and then you were Stephanie from then on. Was that the start of feeling like that was your new identity? or Once or twice... Um, I've given my date of birth as 1939, which is when I came to Britain. And it's a sort of Freudian slip that I think tell, tells you a lot. Um, That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's extraordinary. It's happened twice, actually. Um, it, the change of name was also empowering. It was I was grown up. I was 18. It was a decision to take British nationality, citizenship myself, um, and um, to realize that the time when things happened to me were over and now it was up to me to make things happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, very proud of my British nationality. If you've ever traveled without a proper papers, it's not much fun. Everybody is challenging you. you know, who the hell are you? When we first arrived in Britain, we were called um, enemy aliens. And then somebody realized they were talking about children, mm. and that was changed to friendly enemy aliens. But if you've ever been a friendly enemy alien, you know it's not a good thing to be. But um, at 18, the British citizenship was special to, to me. Um, I value it a great deal. There's so many courageous moments in your life and in the book. And I wanted to ask you firstly about a bit in the book I found very moving and very courageous was you talking about mental health, which felt like back then you just didn't have as much support or help or the language to even talk about it. And We also kept pretty quiet about it. Um, I had a good old-fashioned nervous breakdown with various stresses at home and, and, and work. And um, certainly um, from the work point of view, I was just having a sabbatical that um, I did not want to know that the company, their chief executive, was mentally ill. Mm. And um, so one did keep very quiet about it. Um, family and friends were helpful. Um, and I'm often asked to comment on that. And I think it's so important, if you're a manager, to, to watch other people's mental health um, and to make sure that they all have somebody that talk to um, somebody to listen, um, more important than talk, perhaps. Um, and that listening skill is what helped me. I've, I had six years of psychoanalysis to get me out of my traumatic childhood. Um, it is so important that we actually hear what's going on in other people's minds. Yes, I think for the same reason I talk about my learning disabled child who was autistic, um, in that it's no respect of persons. And uh, you never know what life holds for you. 
And that happened to me and has driven the rest of my life. I wanted to talk to you about sexism because (laughs) when I'm reading your book, I'm obviously shocked. And the crazy things like at the time when you were, you know, at the height of things, you women couldn't open bank accounts by themselves or they couldn't sign off their own documents or they weren't allowed to fly planes. Like These are all the things that young people are shocked by. But actually, there's so much still going on and there's so many things that women feel like they're patted on the head, which I know you say mm-hmm. in a TED talk about. And I just thought, what, what was that like at the time? Well, I came to London from rural Shropshire and I was physically scared of the many people that... Um, were largely male in the work environment. And to look back and sort of think, well, what was it? It was simply that women were such second-class citizens that if we spoke out or had ideas, they were poo-pooed. They were, um, you know, I'd be, um, the one I often remember is is selling a, a major, or trying to sell a major contract to a government department. And I was dealing with a junior minister he was pinching my bottom. Now, you, you know, you, how do you keep yourself at a professional level at arm's length and at the same time build the sort of relationship that somebody's going to buy a million quid's worth of software from you? So it was, there were strange times, um, exciting times, because I was very early in the computer industry. I'm classed as a late pioneer and I'm in the museums of Bletchley Park in California. So I am a museum piece. So it was very, very different. And I think young people really have to remember that it's only a couple of generations that it was like that. I still hear um, of problems that today's young, bright women um, are experiencing and they are bad and they have to be changed. Um, But they are things that are cultural Whereas I was dealing with things that were legal issues. Um, There were certain things that were quite well-intentioned, such as the women were not supposed to work at nights, for example. That's a well-intentioned in the same way as women were for many years, I think always actually, not allowed to go down mines, women and children. Horses, Mm. men, yes, but not women and children. Did people change their opinion, men? I mean, did people act differently towards you when you started making a lot of money? Was that, was that, um, did you notice any change there or were they still being (laughs) rude? Um, I think they'd patronized me for so long. And it's very strange that if you take money as a measure of success, that after many years, I exceeded the wealth of many of the people that used to patronize me. And I don't think it's that important. Um, but it is ironic that um, I should be able to overtake some of these great big heavyweight pompous corporate guys. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's just but fills I mean, me with joy. I mean, you know, it's, I didn't have a salary, but you know, entrepreneurs we have the chance to create wealth, and usually we fail. And then we have to pick ourselves up and start again. But eventually, when we succeed, um, we can make it big. I just wanted to read a really small passage. It's like a little tiny bit from the book, but I highlighted it and I I think I'm going to print it out and put it on my wall. It says, the more I became recognized as a serious young woman who was aiming high, whose long-term aspirations went beyond a mere subservient role, the more violently I was 
resented and the more I was kept in my place. I think anyone listening to this podcast will probably be feeling like they have an ambition. How did you keep going during just all of those comments? I think it was a matter of pride. Um, Because I'd been patronized as a Jew, I really was determined as an adult, I was not going to be patronized as a person just because of my gender. And I did learn, I suppose, to have a facade. Uh, I never let anyone see, I think, how it affected me, how it hurt. I learned to use humor to defuse many situations. it's a fine line that women, even today, I think, have to walk um, between being charming and pleasant and, 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 and listening, most of us, are, many of us are in marketing roles, um, to actually being subservient. And when you look at artificial intelligence today, um, you notice that all the Alexis and, and so on on the, on the web um, saying... Um, what are some of the things they sort of say? I'm not sure that I understand <laughs> that. Um, it, 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 women are then positioned in again as a subservient role. Because the other the other point that I thought was so interesting in the in the book when you talk about how you were going to go back to work after having your child, that was something that you were going to do. But you say you said that your your own mother and other people were quite shocked by that. Well. Why should you go on, want to go on working after marriage? I thought Derek had a good job, as if the only reason that women should want to go on working uh, was for financial reasons. And uh, I was really much more interested in you know, a vigorous professional career um, to maintain some sort of intellectual activity, uh, much that I wanted children. Um, it, it was not just a, a temporary thing that was going to be put on the back burner. It takes a certain man, even though it shouldn't, they should all be like this, to not be intimidated by someone who is so successful as well. I was conscious that I did intimidate people and um, somebody, and I forget who, um, taught me little dodges about how to make myself more um, vulnerable. One example was if it was raining to um, pretend that I couldn't fold the umbrella up and sort of say, please, can you help me do this? Um, Or to drop her handbag or all the mess on the floor and so on, deliberately to show myself as a vulnerable person whom they could help. Now, I don't think I'd ever do that again now, but it's those sorts of, um, they are dodges, gimmicks to give a very clear message. I'm competent, but I'm still a woman. I enjoy my femininity. I'm not a pseudo man. I do wear trousers most of the time, but uh, we used to have a house style, no trousers. But um, I think women and girls have to, you know, grab the opportunities that are there and make them their own. We all have different personalities. Was it quite male-dominated, your your offices? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, when when I went into the staff canteen, you know, two hundred faces would turn round. Oh, a woman! <laughs> it does feel complicated to know how likable to be, how nice to be, how scary to be. And at the end of the day, I think it's very inspiring watching you just be yourself. Well, this is the only one that we can really do with any honesty and and, and with any consistency. I used to also speak out when there was sexism or racism, 
um, at any meeting that I attended, irrespective of whether it was an in-house meeting or outside. Um, and eventually on in-house meetings, I could, could say, <clears throat> I just <clears throat> cleared my throat and everybody knew, ah, somebody talked about something that I, I disapproved of and would apologise and move on. When you were writing the book and going back over these memories, were you, was it any moment of, oh, I wish I could tell the younger me to do it differently? No, I don't look back in that way in the sense that I did and do always the best that I can. And you can't do more than that. You say, I wish I could do this or I wish I could speak French or whatever it is. Um, you can just do the best you can. And if you do that consistently, you're honest to yourself and you don't have those regrets. I often wonder what would have happened if I'd have married my first love. But um, I think many women feel like that. And that's why I loved your book so much is because it really reminded me not to do that, not to do the kind of what ifs and the mm -hmm. kind of going back and beating yourself up about things. And yeah. and also I found the way that you spoke about grief very moving, but very inspiring. When I was reading the book, I was thinking to myself, I really, really wish that this was a film and that I could watch you and your life play out because it is it's just movie worthy. Like your whole life is so incredible. And um, I've heard on the grapevine that there might be a film. Emma, you are quite right. I'm delighted to sort of say a film is being made. Um, we've been working on it now for three years, which means we're on the fifth version of the screenplay. Um, and it should formally start this year and should be launched next year. Um, the big screen is a bit scary. But of course, I shall just be there watching somebody else play me and um, some of the names of the that have been mentioned as possible Steve Shirley's in the film are very impressive. It's so exciting. Yes. And, and will you be quite heavily involved? I don't think so. I have the right of veto on some of the characters and of the producer and director. Um, but since I know nothing about filming, it's unlikely that I'm going to ever use that veto. And I just, it will seem to be very clever. We need more of these stories, don't we, on the on the screen? I remember watching Hidden Figures and just thinking, why hasn't this been told before? I talk very often to, to women's groups and have to point out that women of colour really have a double whammy. Considering you've got all these projects going and there seems like no sign of slowing down for you how do you how do you manage kind of the the hectic just people wanting your attention quite a lot in in your day-to-day -day? well I have a lot of help and sort of guardians and wardens I suppose that stop people getting at me too much um once or twice I've been mobbed by a crowd which is not pleasant um, and I'm not <laughs> I, sure. I was probably in that mob <laughs> <laughs> um, but um I try to keep myself available, even that means that I can't respond to um, correspondence immediately or even next week or next fortnight, um, but it does always get answered. Um, I, I, there's something which I call the green, green ink brigade, the letters that really are pretty crazy. Um, the first few that came, I sent to my solicitors and sort of said, what should I do about this? And they just sort of said, ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people are generally very kind. So it feels like a lot of people nowadays are activists. They're just, you know, on the side, there's always something that people want to campaign about or take on. And I know that's always been the way throughout history. But um... commercial companies also have moved into that mode. 
um, that um, it's kind of not enough anymore not to care about something. It's not enough just to produce the best widgets in the world. You actually have to have um, you, you you know where they're coming from and how they're made and, and the, the materials that are being used. I think we've all become conscious of not just the environmental issues but also the social issues. And certainly, I am. I'm not political in any way, and in fact, I'm quite ignorant on some of the political things, but I care very much about people, and so I do get involved with a variety of things focused on people with autism because that's what I know and understand. Uh, just so, so just lastly, um, for those people going out there to buy your book immediately, um, what, what is like the key message you just hope it passes on? I think the resilience of humans, the requirement as a human to think of others and of the environment, the need to improve day to day. And if I could comment on the title of the book, it comes from a Buddhist phrase, let it be, which means um, dropping the rancor of the past um, and, and and moving on. And that was important to me. And I think we all have to do that. Otherwise, you get stuck in a daughter-mother relationship or a refugee past or a failed job or whatever it is. Um, we actually have to let it go and move on. Such an important message. Thank you for writing your amazing book. And I can't wait to see the film. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. 